Happy Monday, everybody. Hey there. So, we're so glad y'all are here today. We're going to start the uh, Gospel of Mark today. And so, you know, in the next week or two, if you'll help spread the word, that that's what we just began. It would be great. I've been trying to get the word out, like always, about this, you know, and so I just want people to know what we're doing. So, here it is, springtime, sun is shining, baseball has started, the Rangers are 3-0. and That's crazy. 3-0 <laughs> and against, I think the Phillies are the defending National League champions. Wow. From last year, but the Rangers are 3-0. and I guess they probably play later today, you know, and I have to tell you, I like the new rules. If you want to look, learn about the new rules of baseball this year, you can look it up online, but... It's making the game move. It's peppier. It's more like the baseball I grew up with. Early until about, I guess maybe 30 years ago, it changed a lot and things began to get slower, slower and slower and, and glacial. And oh my gosh, I basically quit watching or, or paying any attention to it. But I don't know. So I'm hopeful that'll be maybe a fun year with a base with with the new rules. So let's see, Holy Week. Right? Busy I week coming up. Um, Stations of the Cross that uh, Reverend Lauren Gerlach put together is all off to a great start today. Um, and uh, I think it'll stay that way all week. And so Thursday night we have Monday, Thursday, and Friday, Good Friday. And then we have services on Saturday and Sunday, Sunday. for Easter. It's a Big lot. week. It's a lot going on. Big week. Yeah. So please. I, I and, and Mark is a great place to begin Holy Week. I think so. Because Mark doesn't, see, Mark doesn't have a Christmas story. Mark just plunges right into the grown-up Jesus. <laughs> That's where we start, the grown-up Jesus. Oh, Jesus, wow. So, yeah. So, anyway. Well, what do you have to add today, Patty? You're awfully quiet. What's up? Sorry. Good. No, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> Are you okay? It's kind of like... You check your temperature. <laughs> <laughs> today is kind of like a day where we totally skip spring. Well, we went from like the rain and the stuff that yeah. you expect in spring to 93 degrees. Yes. It's... But short sleeve shirts, yay. Yay, yay for Scotty. You know, I should put, could have put shorts on today, as a matter of fact, and they would never know, would we? They would, would never they, know. If I never told, if they... I didn't tell them. You don't even have to have on pants and they wouldn't know. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you could be wearing a skirt. <laughs> or a skort. Or a skort. <laughs> or basketball shorts. Yeah. See? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So it's, it's like I said, it's really lovely out. Uh, today is my, my Robbie's and Scott's Robbie's 33rd birthday. Which 33. To, that's insane. I mean, it just, it's crazy for me to you know even think that and some of you who knew Robbie way back in the day and remembered when he was like 10 years old because we he, yeah because we came there 25 years ago Almost. 24 years ago yes. and he would have been you know about about eight nine nine yeah about right in yeah there. kind of funny and because Robbie did not go to a school a public school in the area surrounding St. Andrew um, he went to um, Rosemead Baptist and then Prince of Peace uh, through all through high school. There wasn't that many kids at St. Andrew. There was actually nobody else at St. Andrew that went to the same right. school and church as Robbie. And Robbie's always been a part of our class. Yes. Yeah. From the time he was out. a little kid, he'd be sitting in the young singles class. And um, he was really a young single. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> 
<laughs> that is so true. But now he and his wife uh, live live down towards North Park. So St. Andrew is not really too, too close. But I'm still trying. I'm still yes. trying. So anyway, we hope everybody's having a great day today. And um, thanks for being here. And I guess it's time. Time. Let's open with prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful here on this Monday as we are every time we gather in this online virtual world to come together um, to to study your word together and we just pray as you do every time that you will fill us with wisdom energy help us to hear mark well in his telling of this good news and um, may it deepen our discipleship deepen our discipleship help us to grow in our um, Christ-likeness. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, so you know where we'll be a year from now on this very day? On April 3rd, where will we be? We will be in Athens. We will awaiting be, we'll our be have, We'll trip. have gotten there for this cruise that yeah. is not quite ready to sign up yet. So Can't don't don't ask up. me. But, but it's coming. <laughs> it's Just coming. know if you want to go, um, we only have a certain number of rooms yeah. that were able to be held for us on Celebrity. And we've got a great um, yeah. person that's helping us pull this all together. And so you'll, you'll, you'll hear more you'll about hear it as soon as the travel agency is that's ready right. to, to take everything. But I imagine okay. I'll be sitting looking out over the Acropolis. Huh. Yeah. Well, we'll see about we'll that. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so and while I hope Patty's you'll be with me. what, and I hope you'll be with me. I will indeed. So let's let's before we just sort of plunge into Mark, let's talk about the Gospel of Mark for just a little bit, um, some background on it. So when was it written? Probably in the mid sixties A.D., um, which would make it the first of the Gospels to be written. Not the oldest writings in the New Testament. The oldest writings in the New Testament are Paul's letters. But by the 60s, um, probably what was happening, it was uh, some material and collections and remembrances of Jesus were written down, and those uh, began to be shaped into these, into these Gospels. And Mark is in the 60s probably Luke and Matthew in the 80s and the last one in the early 90s being being John's Gospel. Um, who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Who is Mark? Well, of course, that gets, there's a lot of, there's a variety of opinion. I'm with those who believe that it is John Mark. Now, you meet John Mark in the book of Acts. Um, John Mark has some good moments in the book of Acts, and he has some not-so-good moments in the book of Acts, which I guess you could say is true, really, of all of us, if we're, if we're honest. And um, the early church believed that John Mark became an assistant to, a companion to Peter, and that um, what the Gospel of Mark is, is P it's basically Peter's telling of the good news, which Peter surely told in various forums and various ways many, 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 many times. And then um, it's thought that Mark wrote it down because we know that there are Christians from as early as like 
75 AD, 80 AD, 85, where we can get a glimpse into their um, thoughts who view this as being, you know, Peter's testimony written down by John Mark, and that's how it became known as the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's very brief. It's 15 chapters. Um, the end of it is missing. When we get all the way to the end of Mark, we'll find out that the gospel, the 15th chapter is eight verses long and it just kind of ends. And I am certainly with those who think that what happened was the ending was lost. And so there are some other endings that were written later to try to, you know, end it, quote, properly. But no, I just think... Um, in the process of it being copied and sent on and copied and sent on and copied and sent on um, over the decades um, and a couple of early centuries, the last the ending was lost. It's very action-oriented. You will see that. Many times does it say, and immediately, and then, it's always, action is always being propelled forward, uh, pushed along. There are no long blocks of Jesus' teachings. So, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're talking about right now, um, at least the Beatitude portion of it in the sermon series, is three chapters long, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. There's nothing like that in Mark. Um, uh, in, indeed, it kind of seems so what Matthew did was take Mark and cut it up and insert some of these long sections in it, and make some other changes along the way, but it's basically Mark's structure because Mark, Matthew, and Luke are, are really very, very similar in the way they tell the story, this, this good news. Um, they all share a purpose. It's not a biography. These are not... Some people argue about... They argue about everything. If you take the books at face values, particularly Mark, he never says he's given you a history or a biography of Jesus. He's, it's a proclamation of the good news. We'll see that in the very first sentence in Mark. It is a proclamation of the good news. Um, where was it written? Well, might well have been Rome because the early church held that Peter came to Rome and that the church in Rome... Um, if not founded by Peter, was soon headed up by Peter. And if John Mark was with Peter um, in that time, then this is probably written in Rome, and from Rome would have been sent out to various communities and so forth around the Mediterranean, Christian communities. It is, of course, written in Greek, as the entire New Testament is, except for little bits and pieces of something else, because Greek was... If it wasn't somebody's first language, it was their second, kind of like English in the world today. Um, if you didn't grow up speaking English and you wanted to study a language, chances are you chose to study, you choose to study English. So it's kind of the same thing in, in the ancient world at this time, in the Western world at this time. So that's the who and the when. Um, something about the why. The why is interesting to me. I think by this time, the Christians were beginning to realize Jesus wasn't about to return, um, which I do think 
you see some of in Paul's letters, but now it's another 10, 15 years have passed. And, and I think they rightly believed it was important to commit these things to writing because the first generation was going to be passing away. And in the ancient world, what they valued in the way of evidence, history, was eyewitness testimony. That's a gold standard, eyewitness testimony. Um, and so getting down the remembrances of these, this, this, these first generation of Jesus believers like um, Peter would be, would that, to me that would be completely natural. So I don't know. I guess that's about enough introductory stuff. Do you have questions, Patty? Anybody out there? I know Linda did a little bit of homework before starting up the day. So wow. that Linda Rivera, yeah. Wow, that's cool. No, no. Yeah. So those are the basics. You know, you could spend a lot of time. There are a lot of books that will give you introductions to the Gospels and go through a lot of the different scholarly disagreements about it. But I think what I've given you is a is a reasonable way to approach to approach it. Um, uh, producer, is it possible for you to turn the air on in here? I, it sure is. It's getting warmer and warmer as the day goes along. <laughs> You'll just have to, whatever number it's on, you'd have to put it a couple degrees below that number. It'll kick, kick on and then it'll kick off. Thanks. Yeah, it is 75 in here. Yeah, bring it down some for us, please. I'm sweating here, baby. All right. <laughs> so let's go. And I'm working as, as I do in both my Monday and Tuesday classes from the NIV. Okay. So let's start at chapter 1, verse 1. And so Mark just lays it right out here. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. The good news about Jesus. That's actually an important phrase. Okay? Um, it is, the, the word good news is, you need to understand what's going on with that. So I, I did make some slides for today. And one of them, I okay, really, Stations of the Cross going so well. Do participate that in, the, in, in this week. So here's good news. These are all the way we translate the underlying italicized Greek word at the bottom, evangelion. Good news, gospel, glad tidings in the old King James. They are words of proclamation. Words of proclamation. They aren't church words. They aren't in just language of the day. They're not just about Jesus. Um, if an emperor was born, Runners would go out and they would carry out the good news that a news that Caesar had, had a son, that kind of thing, or Caesar had, had a great victory. So the Evangelion is this proclamation of good news. Now, this good news that Mark is writing about is about Jesus, Yeshua. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus and the Hebrew the Messiah. It is, and as I've taught many times and talked about it many times, Messiah is a royal term. It's a king word. You could, if you were like paraphrasing this and just kind of writing it a little more casually than we often do, you could say the beginning of the good news about King Jesus. That would work. 
because Messiah is a royal word. It's a king word. Um, and it is, the word about there is significant. Um, it's not, it's, Jesus isn't bringing good news, right? Okay, so he's not bringing a document or writings or teachings that is the good news. He is the good news. He is the good news. Um, it's centered on who he is before what he says or what he does. This is good news about Jesus, um, that Jesus is Messiah. Look at the next phrase, the Son of God. Now, even by Mark's time, that is not a fully developed understanding of the Trinity and all that kind of stuff. We're still only, by the mid-60s, we are 35 years or so um, past Jesus' death and resurrection. So, so it's not invested with all the kind of stuff that would come later. Working from the scriptures, there's a lot more to go, a lot more to work with. But for Mark, um, uh, it brings to us this sense, I think, of Jesus' divinity, right? And it captures for us the truth that the early Jesus followers found themselves, very surprisingly, they found themselves speaking of Jesus the way they had only ever spoken of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Egypt. Uh, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, uh, the Holy One of Israel. And, and they found themselves worshiping Jesus. And these were Peter, John, Mark, all of the writers except for Luke were Jewish from the first century. So they were all radically monotheistic. Nothing casual about it for them. They're radically monotheistic, and yet that's what they find themselves doing, worshiping Jesus. And, and how, how does that come to be? You know, there's a very interesting book on my shelf called Remembering Jesus. And the writer tries to give the sense of the disciples in the years after um, Jesus um, telling stories, remembering Jesus. Do you remember when he said X? Do you remember when he did Y? Well, now we understand. And it led them quickly, quickly to speaking of Jesus as God, um, which you see reflected in Paul's letters. Some of the great passages about Jesus' full divinity come from Paul's letters, which were written before the Gospels. Now, it's impossible for us to know how much of Paul's writings uh, Mark had access to. I, I certainly don't know. Um, but... Clearly, by this time, Mark had Mark, Peter really, is is understands that in Jesus he's not only the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Whatever exactly that might mean, 
He's the Son of God. And this is what the good news is about. And this good news, um, as shatteringly unexpected it is in one way, because no, as Paul would say, Paul said, you know, in one of his letters, you know, basically in so many words, nobody could see this coming. Yet they now understood some of the writings of the prophets in ways they had not. And so Mark writes, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Okay? Now, before we get to Isaiah the prophet, though, okay, this is actually two different prophetic sentences. Turn to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to make you bounce around your Bible a little bit here this afternoon. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I'll do the same the same thing. The last book of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament. It's actually kind of easy to find in that way because it's the one right before, right, right before Matthew. And the Christians placed it that way because it is the natural bridge to Matthew. Because Malachi has the sense of what is of of what just lies ahead. Okay? So look at chapter three, verse one in Malachi, where it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Okay? Um, and Mark takes that it it ends up being slightly different than a direct quotation from the NIV Old Testament to the NIV New Testament. Um, the reason is because it's I don't know. Should I explain that, Patty, or skip that part? You could explain a little bit. Of a it, little yeah. bit. Okay. The reason, the most fundamental reason that the quotations you find in your New Testament from the Old Testament are are not exact matches is because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And then a couple hundred years before Jesus, it was, it was um, translated into Greek. And that's what the writers of the New Testament used. They don't use the Hebrew Old Testament. They use the Greek Old Testament. And so they take that and they bring it into the Greek of their day and their way with whatever choices they want to make. And then the Greek of the Old Testament gets translated into English for you and me, and the Greek of the New Testament gets translated into Greek for you and me. And by the time we're done, the quotations don't match up exactly. And sometimes the writer wants to just change the quotation a little bit, which is perfectly fine. These are, these are writings inspired by God, right? So if that's what Mark wants to do, I mean, Mark can probably do things you and I shouldn't do with Old Testament scriptures because his writing is is God-inspired. God-breathed, Paul would say, I think, um, in a way other writings are not. And so he takes the Malachi passage, he, he renders it this way, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Messenger. I will send my messenger ahead of you. Who is the messenger, do you think? John the Baptist. Who do you think? Yeah, I think you're right, Patty. And who is the you, the Y-O-U? 
For whom is John the Baptist preparing the way? Jesus. Jesus. So it could be, I will send John the Baptist ahead of Jesus, who will prepare Jesus' way. Okay, so you've gone back to Mark. I just don't want I'm to I'm sorry. Yes, I'm confused. back in Mark. I didn't even say that, did I? No, but just so people know. Just so people are back in Mark, chapter 1, verse 2. Okay, so so here's the first one. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way from the book of Malachi, uh, a very late writing in the Old Testament. Um, and the Christians chose to put Malachi right before Matthew in the arrangement of the Bible. And the messenger is John the Baptist, and the Y-O-U is Jesus, of course, because John the Baptist is the one preparing the way for Jesus. And then Mark goes to another Old Testament prophet, this one being Isaiah. I won't make you look it up because I will only confuse things. This is from Isaiah 40. We did Isaiah in here. Is it that right, Patty? Yes. yes. Okay, so remember Isaiah 40 begins this whole big new section with these promises from God about um, the arrival of one who prepares the way for a savior. It's the opening tenor aria in the Messiah. It, it begins Handel's Messiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Right, so what is Mark saying? Mark is, is saying that the prophets have prepared us for this, prepared us to understand who Jesus is um, if we read the prophets well, if we hear them well. All right, any thoughts or questions? Not I'll pause so. for a second while I get a drink of water. I realize I do have to leave you time to type if I want anybody to speak to me from out there in the world. Okay, so you get the Old Testament prop prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 4, and so, well, of course, of course, of course, of course, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So let's take a look at a little bit of geography here that I get asked about. I want to share with you. Okay. So, this is my usual map showing Galilee in the north. This is in Jesus' day, Galilee in the north, Jewish. Samaria in the middle, not Jewish. Judea in the south, Jewish. And, um, John the Baptist appears in the wilderness. That is on the close to the Jordan River in some cases on the western side and, and often on the other side of the Jordan River. But it's out there. It's, 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 you're, you're on the eastern side of the big mountain ridge that, that runs down the middle of, of, of Israel. So here's, we're kind of closing in. You can see Jerusalem at the bottom of this. You can see the top of the Dead Sea to, in the lower right, and then the Jordan River, which flows from the Sea of Galilee in the north into the Jordan River. And um, somewhere along the Jordan River there, 
that's where John the Baptist is headed. He's gone out to the Jordan River, out there in the wilderness, to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, so give you just a little bit more perspective on things. So this is a, I used this photo in class yesterday. This is Jerusalem today. Um, and if you look in the far distance on the right side, you can see the Dead Sea and the Judean wilderness. And at the top of the screen, flowing into the Dead Sea would be the Jordan River. And somewhere up there in the Jordan River, probably closer to Jerusalem, not way up there in Galilee somewhere, John the Baptist has gone out to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He may be way up there. Okay, way up there as as in, um, way up there much closer to the Sea of Galilee. But it doesn't matter. What matters are two things. What really matters is that it is the Jordan River. That's, that's the big thing that matters. Okay, so here's another photograph of the wilderness and the Dead Sea. I always love this one because it really demonstrates that, man, if you want wilderness... They've got it <laughs> over there. They are desolate lands, which get basically no water. That's, that's the problem. They get basically no rain. So, um, and this is one depiction, you know, on probably some film somewhere of John the Baptist, kind of this wild-eyed, wild hair guy living out, wearing animal skins, living on locusts and honey. And, you know, it's thought that he might well have spent a long time in the community called Qumran by the Dead Sea. Let me go back to my map here. Um, you see Qumran right at the top of the Dead Sea there at the lower right-hand corner? That was the community of Jews who, who wrote, whose library we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they moved to the Dead Sea to separate themselves from the rest of Israel and live very ascetic lives, very apart lives, very just not living like everybody else will live because they believe that in doing so, God could keep his covenant and act through them to save, to save Israel. And um, when the Great Revolt came about in the 60s, um, they hid their library of scrolls in jars, clay jars, sealed them up and put them in the, in the wilderness caves around Qumran. And when those were first discovered after the Second World War, right, almost 2,000 years later, isn't that yes. crazy, crazy, yes. crazy? Um, they were dubbed the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yep. Yes. I noticed Quiet. that there's a number of people who are on today who have been there with us. Yes. Uh, yeah, you go down to Qumran, you realize, man, you got to really want to be there to get there, don't you? Yes. <laughs> hot, very hot, hot, very dry. So, you know, so here's, here's one. I think this is actually from, I think the Mormons did this one. So this is John the Baptist. He's, maybe that's supposed to be Jesus. Maybe it's not. doesn't matter. Um, but it's in the river. 
Um, typically along rivers, there'll be bulrushes like these, right, because of the water, and there are people gathered there because the crowds came. The crowds are enthusiastic about this. Um, so let me go back to me here, all right? So why, why the Jordan River? That's, that's important. When, after Moses has died, God instructs Joshua to lead the people into the land of Canaan from the east side along across the Jordan River. Okay? So um, just, well, I guess I'll go back to the, as long as I have the map. Oh, oops, oops, oops. Okay, there we go. One more second. I'm clicking. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. So you can see the Dead Sea in the south, the Sea of Galilee in the north. So in that area, let's just say over the name Perea there. <laughs> That's like where they crossed. To enter, the, to enter Canaan, to begin to conquer the Promised Land and, um, and create this permanent home for themselves, this land that God had given them, but they had abandoned when... Um, Abraham's family fled to Egypt to escape a drought and then ended up being enslaved by, by Pharaoh. So because it was the place where the Israelites entered the promised land, it became associated with freedom because the Exodus, the story of entering the, across the Jordan River is still part of the story of the Exodus. Because it's part of the story of the Exodus and their flight from slavery, it became a symbol of freedom. So when you live in Jesus' day and you resent very much the, the Romans, well, you know, the Jordan River is symbolically very attractive to you. And now John the Baptist is calling people out there and preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the word baptism in the Greek is merely means the word plunging. This isn't the sort of thing that we Christians mean by being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a plunging in the river to symbolize a cleansing and the repentance of sins. So the person would come down they would be plunged into the river by John the Baptist. They would, you know, make a renewed promise to God to turn their life around. They're going to walk in God's way now rather than their own way. And um, they might even put on clean, uh, like white clothing to signify this, this, this cleansing. But, but, but that's what it is. Much later in the book of Acts, we discover that there are Christian evangelists who don't understand the difference between this thing that John is doing, this plunging, and what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to be baptized into the community of Christ's people. Well, that can't be this, because there aren't any Christ people yet, right? But this is important. The Jews really valued their, still do, their cleansing rituals, these ways of understanding this, this constant reminder that they need to be cleansed of their sin and to repent 
not merely to be contrite and be sorry for things that they have done, but actually to get their life headed in the right direction, to re-embrace God's way. And so when John calls them out into the wilderness um, in the face of the Roman soldiers who in, are in Israel and in the face of a corrupt priesthood that has corrupted the temple, the people come flocking and the crowds come. And that is what leads to so much trouble for John the Baptist, right? Scott, I have a question yeah. that just came to me. Yeah. Um, so is this the baptism that John is doing, which we know is different, and there is, right, as, as we go on into the New Testament, we, we understand and we're taught the difference between the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of John. Yes. Would this, the baptism of John the Baptist, would that type of cleansing be similar to the, the Jewish people at the time who had the mikvahs in their own Oh, house? very good, Patty. The mikvahs down at the bottom yeah, of the house, a, the a family of thing. means would have a mikvah, which was a little, a little place down at the bottom that water was supposed to always be running through, and they would go down there to cleanse themselves. The answer is yes. Okay. So it's all... It's a cleansing. Yes. Many of us have seen it there. It was almost like a little one or two step down into like a little sunken tub. You know what else it's like? What else? The jars of water at Cana at the wedding that Jesus turns into wine. It's that said specifically those are jars for cleansing. Okay. That's what they're there for. They're, so it's a big part of Jewish life. But here, see, John isn't just saying, go home and use your mikvahs or something. John's saying, come out to this river of freedom, right? Yes. And we're going to do this together. I like do it publicly. Do, do it, it publicly. And so okay. you, soldiers come, priests come, Pharisees come to see what's going on. So there's certainly the sense in the New Testament that this is a pretty big deal. This is pretty exciting. Wow. Yes. Wow. So look back at verse 4, because I did speak a lot there. <laughs> and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. He shows up, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, is there some hyperbole there? Well, of course there is. Everybody uses hyperbole. I do it. Everybody exaggerates when they're trying to make a point. You know? Um, so, it. but Mark wants to convey, I think, the size of the crowds. He wants to convey the excitement. Um, and in a way, it prepares you for what's coming. Because you know when it says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem came out to this guy who is wearing animal skins and locusts, and he's not a priest, he's not a soldier, he's not a Pharisee, he's not a scribe. That is likely to lead to trouble, right? Because he is stepping into the bailiwick of those people, the and they don't wick. like it. What? What is the bailiwick? Bailiwick, into the, to the area that they control. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. They were plunged by John the baptizer, the plunger, into the Jordan River. 
Now John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. By the time of that, you're, you're kind of, what comes to mind is like Elijah, right? Elijah, this great prophet of Israel during the time of King Ahab, about, let's just call it 850 years before, who was called by God to go challenge King Ahab. And he goes to see King Ahab, and he says to Ahab, well, you know, it's not going to rain. <laughs> It's for like three years, and that's a direct insult because Ahab is a worshiper of a pagan god called Baal who is the bringer of life and rain, and it creates this contest. And so Elijah runs for his life, and he lives, spends the next, I think it's three years, living in basically a dried-up creek bed called a wadi, um, being fed by, by birds and stuff, would bring him things to eat this sort of wilderness wild person, um, not living by the world's conventions, somebody who is um, on a very different path. And so you meet a number of these Old Testament prophets um, who, are, who are like that. You know, even in even in the post-Jesus Christian world, go to 180, 280, 300, 400, there were Christians who moved out to the wilderness, out to the desert, to live, to pray, to write. Um, they were called the Desert Fathers, and um, we have a lot of their writings still, the, the devotional writings, spiritual writings about... Um, that came out of that time. It's kind of it's a little bit of a precursor to monasteries and, and monks. So you can already see, if you know something about the times, a confrontation building. A confrontation building. And this, verse 7, and this was John's message while he's out there plunging people into the river for the their cleansing and their repentance of sins. He says, Ah, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you, I baptize, baptize you with water. I can plunge you into the river. But he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to plunge you into the Holy Spirit. Not just water, the Holy Spirit. Wow. What a powerful thing. I, I can I can imagine people being very unsure what he means. I could show you in the Old Testament various places like Isaiah sixty-four, maybe, where the actual words the Holy Spirit are used. Um, to speak of God's presence with people. But there are other words used in the Old Testament to speak of God's presence with people. Um, Lady Wisdom is one. The Shekinah, the presence of God. Um, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit. And that we know using all of the scripture, including the new, all of the New Testament, that that is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. 
All John could know is that these people are, what he's promising, he's, there's one coming after him who's going to uh, plunge people into the immediate presence of God. I've never used that phrase before. I like that way to put that. He's going to plunge people, because that's what the word baptizo is, plunge. He's going to plunge people into the immediate presence of God. You know, even, you might say, well, Scott, I'm going to convince you that he doesn't really have any sense yet of Jesus' divinity. But if he sees, if, if John understands that Jesus is the one sent by God, the one, capital O, sent by God. It's the same thing. Something big is happening. It's big, 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 big. And John the Baptist, he might seem like he's the end point in this, but he's not. He's pointing to somebody else. He's pointing to one who John the Baptist isn't even worthy to untie his sandals. So, at that time, while all this is happening down there, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. See, this is, this is how we don't really know where on the river John is, and it doesn't really matter. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus, people forget about this. Jesus is a righteous Jew. in first century Judaism and before <laughs> a righteous Jew was one who kept the law of Moses and Jesus does keep the law of Moses Jesus is the one who teaches what the law of Moses is really all about he doesn't keep it the way the Pharisees expect him to keep it but he keeps it the way God expects him to keep it so he's a righteous Jew. And as being a righteous Jew, he goes to Jerusalem for the festivals and he comes out there to the river to be cleansed with everybody else. I, I, I've been asked, well, why does Jesus go? You know, if he's sinless, why does he go down to the river and get cleansed? He's a Jew. He's a man. He understands the importance of contrition and repentance and he goes down to the river. And he's going to be cleansed with everybody else. And I don't think you have to push it any further than that. We, we end up getting ourselves trapped too much in, in our later, deeper, better theological understandings and remove ourselves from what's happening. Jesus is the Jewish, devout Jewish man from Galilee who comes down to the river to be plunged by John as all as many other Jewish men are coming down to be plunged by John into the River Jordan. Simple enough. But look what happened in verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he, I'm emphasizing the he because in these accounts, you have to read every word carefully. He saw heaven being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Who's the he? 
Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he... Jesus. Jesus. He saw heaven being torn apart by the... What does that mean? Okay, it's, it's, it's metaphorical. It doesn't mean the cosmos is going to... The stars are falling out of the sky. But for these people, straight up above their heads, if you went far enough, and it isn't actually that far, you would run into the sky, and on the other side of sky is God and God's throne. And so it's like it's it's like the clouds are parting and the lights coming down and 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 this dove, this symbol of the spirit comes down and descends upon Jesus. And the question is who sees it? The crowds? No indication the crowds see it. Jesus sees it. This is about Jesus. This is between God and Jesus. Between, I mean, between the Father and Jesus. How about that? Because Jesus will speak to the Father, pray to the Father, invoke the Father. This is between the Father and Jesus. And so he looks up, he sees the heaven being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying what? You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now this affirmation of Jesus isn't intended for the crowds. Don't I, do you see anything in the paragraph that makes it that indicates it's intended for the crowds? He saw. He saw. So if it's not for the crowds, it's for Jesus. Why does Jesus need this? This gift from God, this affirmation, this... Because he's going to embark on a very, very difficult path. We're at Holy Week. We just had Palm Sunday. In a couple days, it'll be Monday, Thursday, and then Good Friday, the day of crucifixion. Jesus is embarking on a very, very difficult path. And so I think this is a gift from God to Jesus. Father to Son. Was, if the crowds didn't hear it, and we don't know if John heard it, this must have been a story that Jesus told his disciples sure. that, about this event, this day that this happened. Yes. Because yes. there's no other way, there'd be no other way anybody would know. Doesn't indicate. John, John saw it. Oh, and Lynn just asked something very similar. So. So you think Jesus shared this with Peter if others did not see it, that he would have... I think he would have. Yes. yes. Okay. And that's the kind of thing that would be have been told to disciples and shared among them, and some of it written down, some of it remembered, that would then emerge in these Gospels. But if, Because if you just take it, all right, just as it's written... He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now we could, if we wanted to, take this same thing apart in Matthew and Luke and in John and sit down and compare them all and that would be useful. But you need to let Mark 
tell you the story the way he wants to, the way I think Peter told this story. And I think in that, the emphasis here is on the gift that the Father is giving to the Son in this affirmation. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. As Jesus is going to begin to embark on a ministry that's going to last how long? A couple of years, and then he's going to be crucified. He is human. We humans need affirmation, encouragement. I, I, I would not put Jesus above that. If you put Jesus above the need for, for encouragement from his Father, um, you're beginning to chip away at Jesus' humanity. Yes. And I don't think we should do that. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Did Jesus already know who he was before the baptism? Well, that's a good question. How would we answer that? You know, we have, this, we have one story of Jesus' awakening to his vocation that goes all the way back to when he was the boy left at the temple, right? In the Home Alone story. <laughs> when, when he stays behind and Mary and Joseph freak out and come looking for him and he says, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Now, there doesn't have to be any Trinitarian idea to that. Jews in the first century often referred to to Yahweh, to God, as, as, as Father. But you still see in it, right? Because all these educated men, these rabbis, are sitting around transfixed by Jesus' understanding of the Scriptures. You see something of Jesus' budding vocation. So I think he is growing ever and ever more aware of who he is. And maybe that is what impelled him to go to the Jordan River. Perhaps. But clearly, this moment, when he is plunged into the river and he sees the heavens opened, it is like this crossing over for Jesus. I think if he didn't have some readiness for something, I, what would you make of such a thing? But for Jesus, I think he, he is ready for this moment. He is ready to begin. He is, he's, after all, he's middle-aged by this point. He's like 30. May not be middle-aged in our world, but it's middle-aged in their world. I thought we were middle-aged. <laughs> I know. You try to convince me of that all I the time, do. Patty. I know. I know. So, you know, that's a, that's a good, good, good question, Diana. You know, it's interesting. So I've, I've mentioned Anne Rice's book, Out of Egypt, a few times, which is the first volume she wrote about Jesus, her imagining Jesus. And in the first volume of it, Jesus is seven or eight, and he begins having dreams and visions and questions that begin to arise in him about who he is. I liked it. I liked the novel. I liked the approach. But do we know? No. I mean, do we really know? No, we don't. All we have, 
really is what's written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because these questions are not what concerns Paul. Paul is concerned about the implications of Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. It's imp the implications of it for the, us and for the world. But um, even the gospel writers, isn't it a funny thing that the gospel, none of them tell us what Jesus looked like? It seems almost absurd that we get no description of Jesus. Because it's, it's not the point. It's not the point. So, but Jesus gets this affirmation. Um, things will be different for him now than however they were leading up to this moment. And look at 12. In keeping, remember what I said about in Mark, everything is being moved on really quickly. At once, <laughs> at once, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. He was out there with the wild animals and the angels made sure that he had enough to eat and took care of him. But he goes out there for this time of testing, a very, in the wilderness, a very prophet-like thing, right? Um, Matthew has the full, has a much, has a full, telling of this story in the wilderness with the three temptations offered by Satan. Mark doesn't. Mark is always, <laughs> he's always moving on. He's just moving forward, 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 forward. So, you know, again, our minds being as they are, we're filled up with why questions, W-H-Y. So why does he have to go out to the wilderness and endure the testings? Well, I'll give you my opinion. That's, that's really all it is. How could my opinion about this be any better than anybody else's? For Mark, it would be he, his, God has affirmed in him his love, the fact that God is pleased with him, and now Jesus is going to get to see it for himself. Because it is in times of, of difficulty, call it testing or tribulation or something, that we learn a lot about who we really are and who is with us and who is not with us. And so it's a telling point that the angels attended Jesus, right? Who are the angels? These are, the angels are God's creatures who do God's work, who do God's bidding. Um, usually they're messengers. Um, and if you put it with what happened before, I think it's, for me, it's just this briefly, briefly mentioned time of preparation for Jesus to begin his ministry. He's affirmed by God who loves him and is pleased with him and he goes out to the wilderness and he is tested and he discovers at an even deeper level who he is and and um, that no he might be tempted but he's not going to succumb to those temptations and that yes God is with him even in that for the angels attend to him and then he comes back and so the ministry begins 
Do you think that that makes some sense, Patty? It, it does. And, you know, as you were saying that, Lynn put on here, Lynn, you really are always a good, deep thinker. Truly, I mean that. She said, wasn't it wonderful that God gave him the assurance before his, he was being tempted? God told him who he was and that he was pleased with him before he got out there. Before it's like demonstrated to yes. him. Yes. Yeah, right? That was, that was a really good point. And, yeah, it is. It is. So, you know, I, I, I think all of that is a good way to put together what amounts to, what is it, two or three verses, actually. Because Mark doesn't spend a lot of time on it. Mark wants to move right on. So, so let's do that a bit. Let's, let's go now to verse 14. Okay. And I, I won't clap too loud because I'll scare people. After John was put in prison. What? After John was put in prison. Wow. Okay. I told you John was going to be in trouble. He went out to the Freedom River, calling people out there. They came in droves. You think that's going to make the Romans happy? No. Do you think it's going to make the priests happy? No. The Pharisees, the scribes, any of the people of importance? No. So it's no surprise that he ends up in prison. And Mark writes this, interestingly, I think, half a, really kind of assuming that everybody knows the story. Does it strike you that way? Yes. I mean, he doesn't tell us anything about it. He just says, well, you know, after John was put in prison, but y'all know that whole story. <laughs> so, Like it must have been a big deal. Might have been a big deal. Must yeah. have been a big deal. And people knew this story and they were familiar with it. And, and um, it just reminds us that these writings were from, were for people who, who knew a whole lot more about all this stuff that was happening than you and I do. All we have are these four gospel writings and whatever we can gather from the time and other Jewish writings and stuff but we didn't we didn't live through these years a lot of Mark's readers people who would have they would have lived through these years because it's only if he's writing it in 65 it's only 35 years after so a 20 year old would only be 55 now life expectancies were shorter yes but there were a lot of people who lived to be pretty old. And life expectancy was dragged down in part because of very high infant mortality. That would drag the average down. And, um, and so, sure, there, would be, there, there were still lots of people around who would remember these things themselves. So John writes, well, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Okay? And here it is. Here's the NIV. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In the NRSV, it's this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. They're both pretty much saying the same thing. The sense here is, is that it's, it's 
that it's not just you've reached a certain calendar date, but that there's been this big anticipation building. When is God going to step in? When is God going to step in? God made all these great promises in the past. When is God going to keep these promises? And now the time has come. The time was fulfilled. God is keeping the great promises he made through Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and the rest of them. Now it's happening. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's just, a, it's just about upon us. So, what do you do when the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is just about, is just about upon us? Well, repent. <laughs> Come back to God and God's ways and trust. Put your faith in the good news. Right? That word believe in the Greek, underneath it, it's pistis, it means faith. And faith the good news. Put your faith and trust in the good news. In this evangelion, in this proclamation about what God has done and is doing in and through Jesus. It is a proclamation. It, it, is, like, it is like on Christmas. You see, in the old King James, you know, I remember reading as a kid, and when it's Christmas and the angels are coming, Jesus is born. And the angels come to the shepherds. And they say, glad tidings! Right? That glad tidings is good news. Evangelion. Here's, I've got this proclamation for you. It's here. What you've been waiting for is here. It's happening. Don't miss it. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. These are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in John's in, in Mark's gospel. The first words. They're so important. You just need to mark that. Mark it. Memorize. You can memorize that in ten minutes. Verse 15. What does Jesus say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. The time has come near. The kingdom of the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Yes, yes, yes. If you can begin to get that deep into your brain and heart and soul and body, your understanding of Christianity and what God has done will be will be expanded a hundredfold. It isn't that Jesus was just this nice new teacher to come along and tell us we should all love one another and we'll all have a little big hug and all that kind of really sweet stuff. Um, Cross-stitched and crocheted and written, hung on a wall, you know, in the entryway. No, this is big. This is... Um, N.T. Wright wrote a book. What's the name of it? The Day the Revolution Began is the title of the book. Everything changes. Nothing is the same post-Jesus as it was before Jesus. Nothing's the same. This is the biggest moment in human history. Jesus' incarnation, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. This is it. I don't know what anybody would think would be bigger. And that's why, you know, 
a couple of billion people on the planet today call themselves Christians, and that's why it's a darn shame that everybody doesn't. And they dismiss it, and they deny it, and they cheat themselves. For indeed the kingdom of God, and as this goes along, we will talk about what the kingdom of God really means. Um, uh, you can, you know, one of the image I often use to do this is because I use Amazon a lot, right, Patty? I sure oh, do. Oh, my word. So, not as much as my son, Matt, but I use it a lot. And so, packages are arriving. So, imagine one day you walked out the front door and there's this beautifully wrapped package. And it says it's from God. The kingdom is at hand. And you know that in that box, are all the great promises of God kept. Right there. You know, Jesus himself is the demonstration. Jesus himself is the embodiment of the keeping, of God's keeping his promises. When the Jews wondered how... We are never really going to love God and love others like we should. We don't keep the law. We've demonstrated it for a thousand years. I guess we're just doomed. I guess everybody's just doomed. Nobody could imagine that God himself would take on human flesh and be born a Jew in the family of Abraham under the law and would be faithful to God in all things, every day, all days, Loving God, loving others. Yep, yep, that's it. And and so that's the good news that God God has done that in and through Jesus. That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who has always been, is now and always shall be. Jesus has always been before the creation of time. Jesus has always been, as the Father has always been. And Jesus emptied himself and took on human likeness with all of our frailty, all of our weakness, all of our troubles. He lives in a world in which they didn't have much to help with. All, all the physical ailments we get, you know, injuries, aches and pains and diseases and they don't have much to fight any of that Jesus was subject to all of that of course he was he was human he ate he was incarnate he was made flesh but God so loved the world right that he gave his only son so so this is just I just think you know for me personally this verse 15, chapter 1, Mark, is just one of the real highlights in all of the Bible. One of the real important moments in all of the Bible. And I urge you to, I urge you to memorize it. Just You can memorize it in NIV. Um, I learned it a long time ago in the NRSV, so that's the one that comes most easily to me. Um, doesn't matter. Memorize it. Commit it to memory. Um, 
memorizing scripture is a good is a good habit to get into. I've I've have it. I'm not good at it, but I have certain pieces that I have, and um, they all bring me a lot of lot of comfort. Okay, so I think we're going to stop right there. Um, we'll pick up there next week, and I'm just wondering if anybody has any other questions or things today before Patty's kind of making her way around the room. Don't forget, Theodos Damewood service is tomorrow at 3 p.m. in the sanctuary. Yes. Tuesday, tomorrow at 3 p.m. We in, will have class. In the sanctuary. We will have class because uh, our class is over by 1.15. Yes. So we will have class. Yes. And, um, we'll get out of there and allow we'll get the out of there and to like uh, Patty and I will. Ready. We're going to scoot out of the room. And Patty and I will certainly get some lunch. Some of you will bring your lunch, up, but but we'll, you know, for those who would like, we'll be back in the sanctuary at three o'clock for see it as a service. That's right. And Andy Ibsen wrote, "We have been watching the Chosen, enjoying it very much, but they omitted the scene of Jesus meeting John and being baptized." Well, that's odd. Maybe that's going to come yet in some sort of flashback or something. It would be odd to me that they would leave out. Jesus's baptism at the Jordan River, but I I don't know. So that I hear Darlene Bauman says, so you don't think Jesus's mother ever talked to Jesus about his birth and how special he was? I do. See, so I I think that she that she did, and that's why he arrives at the river. Prepared in a way for this affirmation, um, it's so interesting because. Uh, in I'm going to use Anne Rice's novel again. That, I mean, that's what she has happened in the novel, is that Jesus is seven or eight years old. They have returned from Egypt, and he has questions because he has heard certain things, and people don't talk with him directly about it. And he starts to insist upon them asking him about it. And it, Right? And so, yeah. So I think that is how Jesus begins to discover his vocation, his, and it's why, it's what leads up to the home alone moment, right, in, in Luke, where he has stayed behind um, and gone uh, and to sit down with the rabbis. And I know we wish we had more from that moment until Jesus' emergence, how long? 18 years later, but we don't. So, but I personally think Jesus would have a deeper and deeper understanding of who he is. And if you want a, a piece of this, I think he reads Isaiah 53 and comes to understand that Isaiah 53 is not talking about Israel as the people. But Isaiah 53 is talking about him. And he will be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So... Anyway, okay, thank you. Thank you, Diane. Darlene, I don't have my glasses on. Darlene, yes, very good. Okay? All good. You're going to close us up here today, start. honey? Yes. Um, we hope to see you guys. Um, if we don't see you tomorrow at class, we hope to see you Thursday or Friday or both um, at St. Andrew. Um, we're looking forward to it. Looking forward to the whole week. Yes. Absolutely. So let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
we do thank you. We thank you, God, um, just for you um, sharing your word with us, God, through the pages of the Bible. We don't quite understand how it all is, but we know, God, that it is God-breathed, and, and this is your word for us. We pray, God, that you would be with each of us this week as we walk each day through Holy Week as we prepare ourselves for Good Friday and for Jesus' glorious resurrection on Sunday. God, we pray that you would hold each of us close to you, God, and help us to refocus each day um, on you and, and why this week is so special in our Christian faith, even, even way more special, Lord, than Christmas, that this is, this is the time. We are Easter people. Jesus is alive. And we thank you, God, for all of that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, everyone. Bye, y'all. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Have a good one. It's gorgeous out there. Let's <laughs> hope it stays that way. I do.